Our scripture reading this evening is Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. We're going to be studying Article 18 of the Belgic Confession, and thus the whole second paragraph is a series of quotes from scripture. One of them, one of those many quotes, comes from this passage. Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners, conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good. But we do repent of our sins and seek your grace to help us in our remaining weakness. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages. Satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we with all our hearts may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession is Article 18. We will read these words aloud together as our confession of faith. God speaks to us in his word. This is our confession in response to his word. Article 18 of the Belgic Confession. Let us say together. So then we confess that God fulfilled the promise which he had made to the early fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent his only and eternal Son into the world at the time set by him. The Son took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man, truly assuming a real human nature with all its weaknesses except for sin, being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation." And he not only assumed human nature as far as the body is concerned, but also a real human soul, in order that he might be a real human being. For since the soul had been lost as well as the body, he had to assume them both to save them both together. Therefore, we confess against the heresy of the Anabaptists who deny that Christ assumed human flesh from his mother, that he shared the very flesh and blood of children, 
that he is the fruit of the loins of David according to the flesh, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of a woman, the seed of David, a shoot from the root of Jesse, the offspring of Judah, having descended from the Jews according to the flesh, from the seed of Abraham. For he assumed Abraham's seed and was made like his brothers except for sin. In this way, he is truly our Emmanuel, that is, God with us. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to explain a bit of why we're going to focus on what we focus on in the outline you have before you, I need to give you a little bit of context for Article 18. Article 18 of the Confession, if you were to simply summarize it, I think the heading uh, in the back of our Psalter hymnal, for example, says the Incarnation. And so you might think what we would be discussing doctrinally then is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, two true natures united in one person. And I almost started writing that sermon. However, that is Article 19. Article 19 goes into detail about the union of the two natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. That is the doctrine we are headed toward. True God, true man, united in one person. That then raises the question, why does Article 18 even exist? What did this article do that won't be covered in Article 19? Well, if you put them next to each other, there are two emphases that emerge that become clear from this article in particular, and those are the two emphases we're going to talk about this evening. The first is on the rootedness of the incarnation in a story. That when Christ came into the world, he did so as the climax, the high point of the long story of Israel, and his incarnation's location in that story matters. We're going to talk about that this evening. Another thing, and I think this is the main thing that the confession is emphasizing in Article 18, is the true humanity of Christ. That whole sequence of quotes in the second paragraph that we just read are all directed toward affirming Christ's true humanity. And if you go back several articles to our study of Christ's divinity earlier in the confession in the context of studying the Trinity, there is a similar article, but there are far fewer scripture quotes. The confession seems much less worried about Christ's divinity. And so we have to ask, why is that? Well, that was not being debated at the time of the Reformation. What was being debated was the importance of Christ's full humanity. And as I've said to you before, this can feel strange to us sometimes. We're used to the debate being defending the fact that Jesus was fully God, and we forget that there were many times in the history of the church where everyone knew he was divine. That was obvious. What they denied was that he was truly human. And the Reformed tradition in particular has its own concern for defending that humanity of Christ. And that is one of the main reasons this article exists. So we're going to be talking about that this evening as well. First, number one on your outline, an overview of the article. Here is the basic doctrine that we are confessing in Article 18, the story of the Incarnation. 
the eternal Son of God took to himself a true human nature. Article 19 will develop this doctrine in more detail, but there are three main parts already here in Article 18. First, letter A, that he is the eternal Son of God. With this phrase in the first sentence of the confession, Article 18 is drawing forward everything we have studied previously about the divinity of Christ. This is the one who is fully divine, equal to the Father in every way, the fullness of God being made man. Letter B, a real human nature. Eternal Son of God took to himself a real human nature. And then the other emphasis of this, confe- of this article in particular, letter C, we have the phrase in the confession, at the time set by him. So the confession wants us to know that this is the eternal Son of God taking to himself a real human nature. That matters. But this article also wants us to remember that it happened at a moment of time. It was anticipated. It was part of a story, and we live at the other side of that event. And that moment in time, that event, the historical reality of it happening, is one of the things this article is commending to us. Okay, well, let's look at each of those, letter B and letter C in turn. First, number two, the humanity of Christ. Article 17 goes to great lengths to defend and emphasize the full humanity of Christ. Letter A on your outline there, all I did is I took that second paragraph, and then if you look at the version of it, for example, in the back of your Psalter hymnal, it includes footnotes with all the scripture references. I just took those and then interspersed them in the paragraph so that you can see more directly how each one of these is a statement from scripture. I'm going to read this for you again. I want you to notice all the scripture references so you feel that rootedness and notice how each one of these is making much of Christ's humanity. Here are the Belgic Confession scripture references. That he shared the very flesh and blood of children. That he is the fruit of the loins of David according to the flesh. Born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary. Born of a woman, the seed of David, a shoot from the root of Jesse, the offspring of Judah, having descended from the Jews according to the flesh, from the seed of Abraham, for he assumed Abraham's seed and was made like his brothers except for sin. In this way, he is truly our Emmanuel, that is, God with us. As you see those references there, notice how they refer to many places many specific individuals throughout the story of Israel. We're going to be highlighting that in a moment. Notice how they come from all over the New Testament, from the epistles, the book of Hebrews, Acts, the Gospels. All over the New Testament, there is a clear, pervasive affirmation that Jesus was truly human, that when, when the eternal Son of God took our human nature to himself, he did not cancel out the humanity as our confession emphasizes, he was not simply um, like, like sort of the divine spirit driving around a human body, but rather Jesus had a fully human soul. Soul, spirit, body, every part of his humanity he had in fullness. This is something I think many of us have not thought to worry about. And so we might even wonder, why does the confession go to such great lengths to emphasize this true humanity of Christ? Let her be. 
The humanity of Christ is important for many reasons. The atonement, sympathy with our weakness, affirmation of creation, and as an example of the humility we are called to have in fellowship with each other. The humanity of Christ, the full, true, complete humanity of Christ, is essential for the atonement. For Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, for him to take upon himself all that we deserve as human beings, he had to be truly human. Hebrews 2 verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil." The Belgic Confession uses the language, since the soul had been lost as well as the body. That which was lost, our full humanness, had to be taken on that it might be saved. It's also necessary for our sense of Christ having sympathy with us in our weakness. The language of the Belgic Confession, quoting the book of Hebrews, emphasizes that Jesus took our humanity, that the eternal Son of God took our humanity upon himself, quote, with all its weaknesses. Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I'm curious, this morning, when I said Jesus was the only perfectly wise person, and yet he suffered. I'm curious if perhaps at times that fails to truly resonate with us. When we speak of him suffering, we so often picture him as something of a superman, sort of floating over the human events. We're aware of his full divinity. We spend so much time defending that against attacks that when it comes time to appreciate Jesus suffering for us, we're thinking, oh, well, he knew what was going to happen. He knew the resurrection was coming. You know, he was God and stuff. So is it really that big of a deal? Somewhere lurking in that feeling is something coming close to something like heresy. Because we affirm Christ's true humanity. And it is essential for the gospel that we affirm that. And Hebrews 4 speaks very clearly, in every respect as we are, except for sin. We need to be repeatedly challenged to appreciate this true humanness so that we can appreciate just what it is that Christ did for us. Hebrews 5 verse 8 uses the language that Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. Are you okay with that? Well, we have to be because he's truly human and humans learn things. If he never learned anything, he couldn't be truly human. Or the language of Luke 2, verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Say, whoa, hold on, pause. Make sure we appreciate that verse. He increased in wisdom. Now, as to his divinity, he is wisdom incarnate. But as to his humanity, he had to grow in wisdom. And he had to go through all the human experiences involved in growing in wisdom. And the verse goes on to say, wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew in favor with God. He had to go through all of the ordinary human experiences that we have to experience of growing and what it means to live as a faithful human being in wisdom and in obedience. Now, we can't 
spend too much more time here. I simply want to emphasize the need to be willing to be constantly surprised and challenged by this. Don't too quickly assume you have it balanced right, that there are beautiful treasures and comforts and and glories in Scripture that come from that deep appreciation in particular of Christ being truly human. It's necessary as an affirmation of our humanity. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, speaking of the resurrection, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. This idea of firstfruits only makes sense because he is truly human. In Christ, a true, real human being has already been raised from the dead, and that is the guarantee of our own resurrection as we look to him in faith. And so the confession makes much, I've already quoted it, of the need for him to have both body and soul, that he would save them both together. Now, interestingly, at that point, the confession is making a big deal out of the soul needing to be real. And that's true, that's good. We often err the other way, don't we? We know the soul needs to be saved, but the confession says, no, the body needs to be saved. And it's essential that we appreciate Christ's true humanity as part of the good news that your body has been rescued in him and the promise of resurrection is for you, body and soul in Christ. And then finally, it's essential as an example of our own disposition toward each other as human beings. Uh, Earlier, so this actually isn't in the quotes in the second paragraph, in the first paragraph of Article 18, uh, the first quote, the son took the form of a servant. This is quoting Philippians 2 verse 7, where the Apostle Paul is describing the eternal Son of God taking our human nature upon himself. But the thing that leads to that is verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The more you let yourself be surprised by the fullness and trueness of Christ's humanity, the more you are surprised and amazed by what the eternal Son of God was willing to do for us in taking our true humanity upon himself. That humility says all sorts of glorious things about what God has done in the gospel. The Apostle Paul says it also says something to us about how we are to live. That that humility that the eternal Son of God demonstrates is what we are to show toward each other in the life of the church. For all of those reasons, the humanity of Christ is essential. However, number three... The fulfillment of promise. I say, however, because this, another reason, perhaps the most important reason to make much of Christ's full humanity is the way in which it highlights God's faithfulness to his promises. Remember, a moment ago, I said Article 19 is going to give the more abstract, uh, in principle, doctrinal discussion of Christ being fully God and fully man, united in one person, that ancient Christian confession of faith. Well, what's happening uniquely here? Well, one of the themes running throughout it is the language of a story, an event. The first sentence. So then we confess that God fulfilled the promise which he had made to the early fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent his only and eternal son into the world at the time set for him. 
That language, the time set for him, is echoing the language of what we read from the book of Galatians, at the fullness of time. That there was a moment in history in which it happened, and that that moment was something toward which all of history was headed before the coming of Christ. Why is this so important? A couple of things. There are many who have accused the Reformed confessions of ignoring the story of Scripture. So a common accusation is that the Reformed confessions are just speaking of all of these abstract doctrines, but look at how the Scriptures present these things in their rudeness in the history of Israel, and the confessions neglect that. And there's a couple of responses to that. One of the good responses is to say, well, look, the confessions aren't trying to say everything. What they are addressing is that which was being disputed at the time of the Reformation, and the rootedness of these doctrines in the Old Testament scriptures was not being disputed. That's all well and good. But another way of defending the confessions is to say, actually, no, they do show us repeatedly how these doctrines are deeply rooted in all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And part of the beauty of them, part of the richness, part of our confidence in the truth of them is in how this development happened throughout the Old Testament Scriptures before the coming of Christ. Indeed, as... uh, As Brennan has pointed out a couple of times, this is a particular wisdom of the Belgic Confession, making much of understanding these doctrines in the context of the story of Scripture. There are many doctrinal questions that are puzzling, largely for good reasons, but are extra puzzling if we treat them in the abstract, if we remove them from the story. And in many ways, situating it in the story, remembering just how God, the order in which God did these things, helps us make more sense of them. And this is an example of that. So, we turn to the confession and we notice all of these quotes. Why not just say, the New Testament affirms the, deity, or the humanity of Christ in a whole bunch of places, and then footnote all of them? You know, that would have been a lot quicker, a lot easier. There's many places in the Belgian Confession where a doctrine is simply summarized and the references are in the footnotes. They're not quoted. There's something happening, some impact, some effect when all these are strung together. And you see, part of the effect is not just in affirming that Jesus is truly human, but that in that human line that he comes from, that line of promise that he comes from, then says something to us about who he is. That his humanity comes as a result of all of those promises, and those promises shine light on how we should understand what Jesus came to do. All of those promises shine light on how we should understand who Christ is for us as his church. A few examples now to your outline. Letter A, son of David. This is a reality affirmed repeatedly in this sequence of quotes from the scriptures. Well, what is the impact of making much of the fact that Jesus came from the line of David? Well, we can say this means that Jesus is a king who rules over all things. Now, remember, how are we arriving at this? In the way of defending Christ's humanity, The Belgic Confession is locating Jesus in this long story of anticipation, of promise. And that story brings something out in terms of who Jesus is. That he is your king. Now, beautifully, 
one of the themes about the king who would come from David's line is not just that he would come from David's line, but that he would be and do things that only God could be and do. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 both say things about this king that hint at his divinity. But what they are clear about from the beginning is his humanity. So that when Jesus is born, when he dies and rises again, when he ascends into heaven and sends his spirit, one of the things we most know about him because of that story is that he is the king who reigns over all. This then affects how we hear the gospel. That it's not just about going to heaven when we die. It's about the reality of the kingdom and the here and now. All of life being affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the gospel inevitably has implications for how we relate to the kingdoms and powers of the world. That Jesus as king, as the son of David, truly human, decenters all of the powers of the world. And that affects how we then relate to the broader culture. Redemption and kingdom are as wide as all of creation. And our confession signaling that rootedness in the line of David as king opens up all of that beauty, that bigness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another example, letter B, son of Abraham. This too is referred to multiple times in that sequence of quotes from the scriptures. In many ways, the uh, confession could summarize all of this. It doesn't, wisely, because the whole sequence matters, but could summarize it in the language of Matthew's genealogy, that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. What does this mean? Let her be that Jesus empowers the mission of the church by his spirit. This is why it is so powerful to say that Jesus comes as that one from the line of Abraham, because what was promised to Abraham, but that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And in that language, in that announcement, that way of describing Christ's humanity, all of that mission is then brought to the forefront. That we, as those who follow Jesus, exist for the sake of the nations. That Jesus came to rescue his lost humanity, and that that promise given to Abraham is the promise that then flows into the life of the church. All the themes in the scriptures of universality and of hope and of promise for the nations are all brought into view by that reference to Abraham. And then finally, letter C. Born of a woman. This, again, is directly referring to our scripture reading from Galatians chapter 4. Now, you could say most immediately, this seems to be a reference to Mary, And of course, it is, and our confession makes reference to that reality as well. But ultimately, what the Apostle Paul is referring to there is the promise given to Eve in Genesis 3, verse 15. And so that reference of Christ being born of a woman then evokes that entire story of the Bible going all the way back to Genesis 3. Letter C, Jesus has defeated the serpent and will undo the curse when he returns. The reference to being born of a woman draws forward that entire drama. That all that has been touched by the curse because of our sin is given new life in the here and now. Everything in your life that is affected by the curse because of what Jesus has done is given new life in the here and now. And then the promise that all will be set right in the new creation. Letter D, God with us then, 
The language with which our confession ends is ultimately a promise of the new creation. The dwelling place of God is with man. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.